Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in this week. Last week we talked about a bird that is common in a lot of the United States, so this week we wanted to bring you a bird that you may not be as familiar with, the oil bird. The oil bird is a bird that lives in caves in South America. It's nocturnal and flies around at night, and uses echolocation to get around. Sounds like a bat, right? This episode is a wild one. Join John, Shannon, Amanda, and I as we discuss the oil bird. Grab your night vision binoculars, and let's get into it. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Birds of a Feather Talk Together. This is RJ, and I'm here with Amanda and John and Shannon. Um, And today we're going to talk about a bird called the oil bird. So last week we talked about a bird, the cardinal, that in a lot of places in the U.S. was very common and everybody had seen, but I think that this week we wanted to talk about something maybe people hadn't heard of, so we decided to talk about the oil bird, which for those of you that aren't familiar is a bird that lives in caves, and a lot of people compare some of its things to like a bat because they're nocturnal. I don't know, do you guys want to talk about the oil bird a little bit? Is there anything... I think oil birds are one of the coolest birds of all species of birds. Oh, awesome. I'm excited for this episode. (laughs) They echolocate, but the good thing for humans, unlike some bats, is that we can hear them. So you can hear the echolocation. Everything about them is fascinating. They look fascinating. Their story is amazing. The things they do, the role they've played in human um, cultures is really fascinating to me too and what do they just for people that aren't familiar what do they look like because if they live in they live in caves they don't look like bats but they i mean they're they're, they're kind of larger than i was expecting they're right definitely they're definitely good-sized birds that's, yeah. I, that's one of the first things i think is really interesting so they're 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 from south america from from northern south america for the most part although they have a really broad distribution through the andes and uh, across into the tapuis in venezuela and in the coastal mountains in, in venezuela and I would say they're about the size of a crow and a little slimmer and a little longer tailed and longer winged. Um, and then, uh, you know, we've talked about bills when we've, we were talking about martins. I mean, they're, they're a lineage of uh, the birds that are often called uh, night jars. Um, in a sense, which is a big, very, very old clade of birds, that, and they're the first branch off, and they're the only species in the branch. Oh. And so one of the things that you know, Shannon was saying about an evolution novelty is early on in the evolutionary diversification of what eventually became not only night jars, but also hummingbirds and swifts, you had this split for a large fruit-eating nocturnal bird mm. and that was in south and they I, I don't think there's any fossil record that implies that they get out of south america oh. but nothing would surprise me given yeah. how old they are mm-hmm. mm. yeah so we're talking about tens of millions of years right wow. maybe even 40 million years oh old some of the that species is uh yeah the so it echolocates it feeds at night in the dark and it has incredible numbers of rods in its eyes. I think when I was reading about it, it has the largest density of rods of any vertebrate. Mm. It's designed for low light, mm. but not designed for no light. Mm. So what has so what they compensate for in these caves where there's really like no or almost no light is um, echolocate. So that's how they find where they're going, echolocation. 
Um, so it's a combination of using echolocation, and then once there's a little bit of light, then they're relying on their right. their eyesight. So they have they're a bird that I would like to see what they see at night, mm-hmm. right? Well, and and they're these different facets of their life history, which be suddenly become really important. Which is on the one hand, they're nesting in these caves with total darkness, where they've got to go back and find their their nesting site in a cave that may have a thousand pairs of birds in it like so that they can be in caves that are really crowded but then they're going out to forage and they're flying along and and so if you think about it these these other night jars and things that are feeding on the wing at night um, those are looking for insects whereas these birds are specifically looking for fruits mostly Mm -hmm. palm fruits Mm -hmm. and so that becomes a whole different mechanism, which I think plays into the reason there are so many rods is it must, in the eyes, is it must be some kind of benefit to help them look at this forested landscape that they're flying out over and they have these big long wings. They, look, they actually look like falcons when, they, when they're, they're flying in a, in, a, in a big falcon. Um, but they're, they're able to fly long distance to find the fruit and, and part of that's a evolutionary requirement because there are periods of time when that's really spotty. So you may need some really special adaptations to get really good at finding fruiting trees when you're above the canopy a little bit, foraging along trying to find it. I was wondering what, what kind of smells they, they have because oh, that's another possibility. And I would say that the closest thing to them from an ecological standpoint associated with the fruit in a lot of ways are fruit bats. And and these are big bats that are that are often doing the same kind of thing. They live in colonies. Um, they tend not to live in caves, but, but again, and they're in they're in places like Africa, and and there aren't actually super big fruit bats in South America, which is kind of interesting. Maybe that's competition with oil birds because of the oil birds. Can't yeah. go very far with the oil birds without. Why are they called that? Right. So they're called that because culturally humans have the birds provision their young to where the the babies can weigh like twice what an adult weighs when they're babies. And they were used to, they were squeezed to get out the oil that, so they put on all this fat because, you know, not necessarily clear how frequently you're going to eat when you have that. So they provision the young pretty well, but they get really, really, really fat when they're babies, and they would um, use that to light lanterns and things like that. It was specifically from the babies? Yeah, that they would, so they oh, would squeeze the oil that. and use no. the oil for other yeah, purposes. And, and oh. Actually, the the scientific name Steatornis is uh, Carapensis is named after a, the town of Caripe, which is a city in Venezuela that has a big nesting colony. Oh, wow. Wow. The city. Okay. okay. So that it goes way back. And as Shannon was saying, the cultural aspect of this is really interesting. And, and there's still a colony in Caripe today. And so, you know, it's, it's been something that at least hasn't, I'm sure, has led to the deaths of thousands of chicks over the years. But at the same time, the colony is still there. And, and again, it, they've got a lifestyle which is incredibly unique and yet at the same time pretty successful. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're not endangered as far as we know Hmm. right now. They build, I mean, literally crappy nests. (laughs) (laughs) Nests are made of poop. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, which is interesting. So I looked at pictures last night of they, the eggs get dyed brown from uh, from the poop that they make their wow. their uh, nest from. It's completely completely wild. That's and then the so chicks get larger than I mean they grow yeah they larger. weigh more they no, weigh they a lot weigh more, more than okay. the, their uh, their parents do. And then how do they shed that weight? How do they get to the point? I mean, if you <laughs> they, they starve, they, yeah. Yeah. Not, they well, have yeah. enough. It's a combination of putting it into growth and oh. producing okay. feathers and things so that okay. they can actually leave the nest. Okay. Wow. But, so but that's palm a, fruits have a lot of good nutrients, a lot of the right kind of nutrients to survive yeah. on. So just and they're vegetarian, which is pretty. That's not that common for birds to be like that strictly vegetarian. No, but there, I was, was going to point out one of my favorite birds in the world is something called palm nut vulture from, from Africa. And it's a vulture that's taken to eating palm fruit. That's what oh. they do. And, and so there are some other things. They're nowhere near as numerous or interesting as oil birds in some level. But it is pretty amazing that, that you get these opportunities out there and suddenly something realizes that palm fruit are something that you can actually exist on wow yeah and we have 38 in the field museum oh, collection wow. so and i i meant to look but do we have a do we have a pickle we might that's we an do, uh, alcoholic specimen mm-hmm. yeah i think i think we yeah, i think we do we just we, we just did a uh, we were just part of a our collection was used from some colleagues from the university of or uh, from uh, the denver museum of natural history who are studying something called the columella which is one of the bones in the ear of birds mm-hmm. and one of the birds that they really wanted to get was uh oil bird sampled and they they were we allowed them to go into the skeleton collection and and they go in with a pair of forceps and they can literally dislodge this bone and they're looking at variation across all birds with respect to this and and you would expect given how special oil birds are in terms of what they're doing that that might be a really interesting thing and they're just beginning to scratch the surface of that so it's neat to have these other specimens like this the one other thing i was going to say is is we were I meant to look this up and I didn't get into the details of it, but, but the distribution of, of in South America of oil birds is such that you might predict there would be some genetic structure because it's fairly broad. There are ones up in Venezuela and then there are ones down the Andes. And they're and, really old as a species. They're, right. They're very old. Right. And it, it, my recollection is the genetic data are not showing that they're very different in terms of their population structure. And, and, and part of that may be literally that birds are foraging so far that they're routinely or routinely enough getting lost and finding their way back to other colonies in different places so that they maintain gene flow across a, a much bigger landscape than a lot of other things would. Hmm. One of the things that DNA has told us that was pretty shocking to many, me, um, was a study that we did yeah, 14, 15 years ago now, showed that hummingbirds and swifts, each other's closest relatives, are nested within the caprimulgiform birds. So they're nested within the family that has, or the order that has, uh, that has oil birds. So, you know, don't, I mean, look at that. There's no wonder <laughs> yeah. nobody knew these relationships because these birds don't, they don't share anything. Yeah, right. right. Don't share behaviors. They don't share. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, one of the fascinating things to me was historically they've been put next to one another, 
but and, not and inside. No, not inside. No, not inside. But but definitely next to one. Which I, I, but I'm interested that somebody thought there was actually reason to keep them close together. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. When they're in caves, we, me and Amanda were wondering, like, do they share caves with bats in South America? Like, are there a point where, like, at dusk, you can see, you know, hundreds of birds and hundreds of bats yeah, all flying out? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm going to guess the answer to that is yes. Oh, and, wow. and, and that's a, a spectacle that everybody should see. One of my, yeah. I keep saying to people that, you know, eBird uh, has these rotating photos that they pull out of the the collection of eBird photos that are coming in. And one of my favorite ones recently is of a red-tailed hawk in the mid, in the middle of a big group of Mexican free-tailed bats that oh, are coming wow. out. And so the, you know, one of the reasons why all these organisms do this is their safety in numbers and caves are really stable habitats for the mm. most part. Yeah, um, what makes a good cave? <laughs> yeah. I don't I I don't know the answer to that. So yeah, Do you I, have any idea? Well, what makes a good I, cave. I think it depends on the species. There's actually some yeah, that's an interesting I should know more about that than I do, I think. But uh but no, I think there's a lot of variation in how wet they are, how dry they are and and so humidity and and that can play a big role in in terms of how suitable they are for for colonies of things. Do they, with their their crappy nests, are do those ever get cleaned out and replaced, or is it this ever growing? <laughs> they, they get to be. They have. They tend to be very stacked. Okay. And so there is actually a level of. You know, it may be that they're not the same site isn't used every year, but over time those begin to to definitely build up so that they're they're. Wow. Yeah. It's a. It's a and. I, I, I would love to see a group of those birds coming out at night from a cave because yeah. that must be quite a sight. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then their call is very unique too, right? It's they got kind of a shrieking, scary <laughs> sounding. Yeah, they definitely make a lot of noise when they want to. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> and, everybody and, should go look at videos and find sound recordings of them because they sound otherworldly mm-hmm. in the way they... <laughs> vocalize. I feel feel like that one of the things that that's fruit bats are a little like that in in places in Africa where where you have the big fruit bats around too that they they are actually quite noisy Mm -hmm. in in that sense and Mm -hmm. that's a a, I mean they shriek at each other it's really and is that just to communicate back and forth or I mean what are they trying to scare things off that's a really good question because I because they don't have Real what, pred- like a lot of predators, right? Or, I mean, they're fairly. No, yeah. no, you know, what would be the information contact of that scream? But you know, that. yeah. Hmm. Well, it, may, it might have to do with their syrinx, the vocal producing organ. Yeah, it might have. You know, that might be what comes out of a syrinx that looks like that. And I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Yeah, but we know people who do, <laughs> and that's just not us. <laughs> The specimen that you get, are you able to study the the eyes? If the eyes are so unique and have so many, is it so many rods or so many cones? I'm trying rods. To rods. Yeah. Is that something that you can study and take apart and look at, or? Well, it, so so, you know, this gets back to whether or not there are specimens that are preserved in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is, uh, most of our specimens, for instance, are probably collected 
back in the I know there I know we got a few specimens in the uh, mid 2000s um, but a lot of them are older than that and those wouldn't have material like that and so when you get interested in something like this that's one of those situations where you really want to be able to go out and get new material that you're preserving in specific ways mm -hmm. so for instance that we were we've got a we just gave a nitrogen tank to a graduate student from the University of Chicago who's studying butterflies but coming back to what you, we were just talking about, one of the things he's studying in the butterflies is actually the RNA expression in their retinas. And so in order to do that, he needs really well-preserved material. And so we let him use one of our nitrogen tanks. He's down in Costa Rica right now. And the goal is to get that material preserved as well as possible for the samples that he's getting so that he can come back and look at that RNA expression. And you know, whoever did the work to figure out how many retinal or how many rods there are in these oil birds needed really good material in order to do yeah, that. Yeah, so mm -hmm. normally when we, if we're going to prepare a specimen as a study skin, we make an incision in the bird and we basically turn it inside out, mm -hmm. take out everything that could rot and replace that stuff with cotton. So, you know, birds don't have white eyes, but bird specimens almost <laughs> universally have white eyes because we replace the eyes with cotton. There's cotton brain. It's cotton stick and then a cotton body that goes in. And now I look at those things and I'm like, I wish we still had your parts. You know, mm. I really wish we had your eyes. Eyeballs, yeah. And I really, really wish we had your brain so that we could see what genes are being expressed in your brain and, and the same with eyes. But, you know, we don't have that material now. But if we know that someone is studying these things when we go to the field, if we're in a place where some of those study specimens are, we will put on ultra-cold um, temperatures, bird's eyes, yeah, okay. so that you can look at some of those things. But, you know, museums don't look like they change very much. I mean, if you went and you pulled out a drawer, and the birds from 100 years ago look really similar to the birds that might have gone in yesterday. Mm -hmm. But the amount of data that we take from each one of these specimens is a lot more, you know, not just geography, but parasites, internal and external parasites. So something that John calls the extended specimen mm -hmm. about maximizing the utility of, of these things to provide details about biodiversity. Mm -hmm. um, and then you mentioned earlier, you called it pickling as far as preserving something. Is yeah. that a, a practice that's still used or is that, how's that different than so, what so you're that's a, What I would tell you is that's a practice that was done in the past that kind of lagged off in the 1940s at least in birds a little bit i mean not 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 everywhere okay but but it's beginning to to come back and we're i don't want to say we're seeing the error of our ways but we're seeing the the value of having more pickled specimens and mm -hmm. so we have a national science foundation grant where we're partnering with a whole bunch of different institutions who've been scanning vertebrates using CT scans, which was something that wasn't even imaginable back in the in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, it's we're literally the last 20 years has just revolutionized our capacity to look at morphology using CT scanning. Well, you need pickles for this, and and my recollection now is that actually we they did pickle a. a uh, oil bird on a expedition in Peru mm -hmm. back in the in the early nineteen uh, in two thousand ten two thousand fifteen or so, 
and and you know that specimen suddenly becomes really important for looking at comparative anatomy questions mm -hmm. across these groups and we've CT scanned that and that CT scan has been made available through this open data portal called mm -hmm. MorphoSource in ways that in a way that anybody can download it and start looking at it and and you know those are those are really valuable things to do and, and a, a bird like oil bird is a great example of something that's so ecologically specialized and has such an amazing natural history that it becomes something that's really interesting to look at in those kinds of in those kinds of details and mm -hmm. I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of the kinds of things that you know what is what does it mean to your so your digestive system if all you're eating is fruits is likely to be very different than a similar uh, related group of birds that's only eating insects and what's the ramifications for your physiology if that's all you're getting out of your diet and it's really high in oils well you know there's all kinds of stuff that eventually people can begin to study and and having those specimens like that as a starting point to get those people looking at those things i mean now we can study brains from pickled specimens because we have the technology mm -hmm. so these super speciating kingfishers on islands we can ask what happens to their brain um, can we know if how brain changes are playing a role in the diversification of some of these lineages of birds and you need pickles to do that because the brain is you know get that information from the outside of the skull yeah. of so, these you know, birds coming back to oil birds what's their spatial memory capacity like mm -hmm. can they actually find trees that are in the forest on multiple nights my guess is probably yes. How do they do that? Well, yeah, so their brains may be, there are parts of their brains that may be more developed and that you could see that through CT scanning. Okay. Um, when you look at variation. Mm -hmm. We just don't know enough about these things yet to know. Wow. Yeah. We didn't think birds smelled very much before, but now we know that that's not true, that their olfactory lobes are, are very well developed. Mm -hmm. Now that we can study brains, we can, we can look at the variation in that across birds. Yeah. Is there a bird like the oil bird is known for, you know, having its such good sight at night? Is there a bird that we've learned has like the best scent, like that can the, smell the, very the well? The classic one is turkey vulture, oh, oh. Really? which is really interesting. So, so what they realized was turkey vultures can actually smell rotting carcasses and things, and so they're flying around picking up those smells. They took advantage of it. So there were these large national ga natural gas pipelines across the the southwestern U.S. And every once in a while, they would spring leaks. And somebody came up with the idea to put in a little bit of beta mercaptanol, which is a, a compound co that comes out of rotting flesh. That the it's one of the things that the turkey vultures pick up on. Uh -huh. And so then they could actually find gas leaks and these long hundred mile long gas <laughs> lines by simply watching where the turkey vultures were were coming in. That's so that's cool. That's awesome. It's a, wow. a great way to take advantage of something that they're doing naturally. So smart. That's so cool. Well, I think that might be a good point to uh, jump into one of our, our mailbag questions. So this is from Nav from West Sacramento, California. And she says, I was lucky enough to have a hummingbird hatch two eggs within eyesight of our kitchen window. She made three nests on a string of outdoor lights. Only one of the nests had eggs which hatched. The other two seemed to have been backups. Is this typical for birds to make more than one nest? Was she perhaps planning to lay more eggs? 
wondering why a bird would make multiple nests in the exact same area. Yeah, that is a cool question, mm-hmm. and, and what a neat thing to get to see in your yard. I know. In my opinion. Yeah. 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 So I don't fully know the answer of why that bird built three nests. Mm. And seems a little overkill. <laughs> I mean, you usually you would practice. nest if it failed, right? If your first one, hummingbirds lay two eggs, two little tiny white eggs. And you would think that if it failed, and they will immediately try to build a, a mm-hmm. new nest. But there's a lot of energy that goes into building hummingbird nests. Mm. This is not just you know, using your poop. It's a lot more yeah, they, that's they, going they, into that. They bring in lichens and spider webs and, um, and they're, they're structurally huh. really sturdy little things. And, mm-hmm. and so that's, yeah, I wonder, I wonder what the... Do you think there were, the, they maybe there was more birds than she knew. Mm. Oh, and yeah. so there were other birds that build nests and those nests didn't succeed. But sh- sometimes it's not easy to know how many hummingbirds you have in your yard or around. Um, I, I don't know, though. That's mm. awfully close if they're on the same wire in her yeah. yard. Yeah. That's so I cool. That, that, that for some reason, I, I, I think that happens sometimes. And, and Well, there's variation, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the rule of biology. Yeah. That almost nothing is fixed without variability. Yeah. So maybe she did it because she could. Yeah. Maybe yeah. there's there's something that gets into hummingbird nests like that that makes them unsuitable to raise chicks in. So there's there's a parasite or something. I don't know whether anybody's looked. At that. It's not like they can't they can't move the eggs. You know you can't like oh this one I'm not so sure about. I'm gonna move them to the next one. Yeah. That that yeah. is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But. That's so cool all right well i think that's it for today then so thanks everyone for listening john you want to wrap it up yeah i think everybody should uh make a trip to venezuela and and look for oil birds because uh they're incredible to see thanks everyone for listening and thank you to earhole studios in chicago for hooking us up with a place to record they're the best if you have a question for John, Shannon, Amanda, and I, feel free to send it to podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com or reach out to us on Instagram. We're going to be off for a couple weeks, and then we'll be back with some fresh new episodes in mid-August. We have plenty of great episodes in our library for you to check out. If you haven't listened already, go back and check out some older episodes where we discuss the frigate bird, the great horned owl, the birds of paradise, the purple martin, and many more. Two of my favorite episodes are the Sandhill Crane and the American Woodcock. There's plenty to listen to, so please check them out. Hope everyone is enjoying their summer. We'll be back soon with more episodes, and thanks for listening.